Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us, and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. So this morning, as we dig a little deeper into the passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and forewarn you that I'm about to say some things that are pretty dangerous. Now, and I know you're not going to think they're dangerous when you hear them, when I read the Scriptures, because it's really just talking about how the church interacts with spiritual leadership, but I guarantee you it's dangerous for me personally to deliver it. Because really, I'm going to be opening, opening two different Pandora's boxes. I, I, on one side, I'm going to open a box that's going to cause some of you, especially those of you who are predisposed to think that all pastors care about is getting more money, you're going to start thinking that I'm just sitting here preaching the sermon because I want to be paid more or whatever. And it's going to affirm some of those feelings you already have about pastors. All they care about is money. It's not what I'm going to be teaching. It's not what the Word says. But I'm afraid that's the box that's going to be open for some of you. On the other side, there's going to be some of you, and what you're going to hear is that you've been given permission to point out every single one of the sins and flaws of this pastor up here, which, by the way, I have a plenty of them. And it's not actually what the passage of Scripture is teaching, but you're going to hear, if you're not careful, that this passage is giving you permission, in fact, telling you you're supposed to point out all of the flaws of the pastors on our staff. And that is a box I don't want to open. We have the capacity here in this passage to do a couple of things that make me really uncomfortable as I teach through it. And if we weren't going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I probably wouldn't tackle this passage, but we need to because I believe it has some truth in God's word for us today. Now, before we read 1 Timothy chapter 5, I want to go ahead and say this. I need you to listen to the whole thing. It'll be really easy as we go to the passage for you just to pick and choose certain things and park on it and come to wrong assumptions. I need you to listen to the whole for you to really understand what's going on. And the second thing I want to make sure before we get into the passage you understand is this, though it talks about me and my role and pastors and our role as your spiritual leader, it's really talking about you and your relationship with Christ. It'll just take us a while to, to get there so you can see it. So let's go ahead and jump in the passage, 1 Timothy chapter 5, find verse 17. Now before we read there, let me remind you of what we covered last week. So in the first part of chapter 5, we talked last week in our bilingual service about how we're family, how we're one. And we talked about how when we love each other and care for each other and support one another and fight for each other instead of against each other, how that actually brings glory to God. And then we talked about how if we choose not to, if we stand against each other, if we don't care for each other, if we miss those opportunities to be family, how we can actually mar and damage the very reputation of Christ. Well, this week, the second half of chapter 5 continues that thought. Ultimately, it's about the reputation of Christ and how that pertains to spiritual leadership. So with that kind of floating around in your mind, let's jump into the passage beginning in verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here's what it says. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, a couple things I want to point out here. First of all, when it talks about elders, in our context today, that's referring to those in spiritual leadership. We, we typically call them pastors, at least the way Paul is using it here in 1 Timothy 5. And so these are applying to pastors, and he's basically saying pastors deserve to receive a salary for the work that they do. In fact, it says in verse 17, they're, if they rule well, they're, they're worthy to be considered of double honor. Now, that in, in Greek, that phrase double honor can also be translated in ample honorarium. If you think about the word honorarium, it comes from the word honor. In other words, they deserve to receive some payment, some compensation for what they do. 
And Paul is very clear. He says, this isn't just my words. Listen to Moses himself. He quotes from Deuteronomy when Moses says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, saying if somebody works, they deserve to receive compensation for it. And then he goes on, he quotes Jesus when he says the laborer deserves his wages. If you have a red letter Bible, it'll be red because Jesus himself said that. So here, Paul, he's, pu- he's pulling out the big guns, man. He's not talking about like second Habakkuk or, or first speculations. He's saying Moses and Jesus say that somebody who does labor in preaching and teaching deserves to be paid for what they do. Now, now here's where it gets really uncomfortable for me as the preacher and teacher of this church to be speaking these words because I get it, right? It sounds like I'm just saying more money, more money, like I need to get paid for what I'm doing, make sure the money comes rolling in. And it's just affirming what some of you think, man, all those pastors care about is money. And, and I get it. I, it is clearly a conflict of interest for me to share this particular passage of Scripture with you. And were it not for us going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, for that very reason, I probably wouldn't pick this passage. But that's what it's saying. It's saying that those who labor in preaching and teaching are supposed to receive a salary for what they do. Now, let me tell you what it's not saying. It's not saying that pastors should try to get rich off their churches. That is not at all what it's teaching. Really what it's saying is those who labor in preaching and teaching need to be released to do that. And how you liberate to do that, them to do that is you help them with compensation so they don't have to have an outside job. So that I can step in, the other pastors of the church can step into this role with every single bit of our time that we have. Because if you think about it, now most of you don't know what I do from a day-to-day basis. You may, maybe you, you read this going, well, why would you need that? How long does it take to to prepare a sermon. In fact, that question uh, was lovingly asked when we had our Wednesday Night Live this past Wednesday, when somebody said, hey, tell me, what's your sermon prep process look like? So just as a general rule, I spent around 15 hours every single week getting ready to prepare this little bitty 30-minute message that you hear on Sunday morning. It's a labor of love, hours studying the passage, putting the sermon together. And, And I know you don't know this, but I spend every week hours praying Sometimes I do that with the rest of the staff. Sometimes I do it on my own. I pray for you. I pray for the sermon. I pray for me. But I'm doing the work of prayer. I spend hours every single week trying to mobilize a staff toward a vision that God has given us, exercising spiritual leadership. Now, I have a pastor's advisory council that keeps my hours in check because I would probably work way too much, but they limit me to make sure I I put 50 hours in every single week doing this work of ministry. Now, imagine if I didn't have a salary from the church. I would have to do all the work that I have to provide for my family with a full-time job, and then somehow try to put in all these hours to lead this large church of mine. It may be nearly impossible. So the fact that I get a, a salary from the church, uh, an honorarium, if you will, according to Paul's words here, allows me to dedicate 50 hours a week to doing the work of ministry. It liberates me to do this ministry. And I think that's a really important point that not many of you struggle with. I mean, and if you were honest, I mean, the vast majority of you watching this going, Jason, I, I don't need a Bible lesson that we're supposed to pay our pastors. I'm great with it. I get it. We're a large church. We have multiple pastors. We pay them. I don't have any problem with that. What's really striking isn't that Paul would say this about a large church like ours. It's that Paul would say this about an itty-bitty church in Ephesus. Because if you don't know the context, he's talking to house churches in the city of Ephesus, which meant that any given elder or pastor would be in charge of a small little house church of maybe just like a dozen to two dozen people, just a few handfuls of families. And he's saying, even on that small scale, I want you to provide an ample honorarium for that preacher and that teacher, that elder or pastor, so that he can dedicate himself to the work of ministry. He's saying, I believe it is that important for the pastors to do their job well. I think what you're really getting is a theology lesson of how much Paul uh, appreciated the work of pastors and elders because they lifted up the church. Ultimately, this wasn't about 
elders. This wasn't about pastors. It wasn't Paul saying there's this elevated class of special person called a pastor or an elder. No, no, He's just saying the reputation of Christ is so important, we should invest to expand it. Because Paul knew that when a preacher stood in that pulpit, and when he taught well, and he fed the flock, and he challenged them to be like Christ, he knew that church would grow numerically, spiritually. They would be more generous. They'd be more forgiving. They'd be more loving. They would look more like Christ Jesus. And he knew that when that happened, the kingdom of God would expand, and the glory of Jesus would rise. And so for the sake of the glory of Jesus, for Christ's sake, he's saying, we need to pay our pastors so they can dedicate themselves to this work. It was a reputation of Jesus at stake. You know this because the next thing he says in verse 19 is, we need to protect the reputation of the pastor because he knew that as the reputation of the pastors go, so goes the reputation of Christ. I mean, that's why verse 19, he says, you can't admit a charge against an elder just on one witness. You need to have at least two or three. He was, again, going back to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. That was just a basic truth. Don't convict somebody unless you have multiple witnesses. Why? Because one person may have some kind of ax to grind, and they may not be truthful. And he's saying this about pastors for a very specific reason. Back in Ephesus, the pastors and the elders were constantly under attack. And let me go ahead and tell you, it's 2,000 years later, nothing's changed. Pastors tend to be lightning rods for controversy. It, It just seems to me that when you think about who pastors are, they are always guilty until proven innocent instead of innocent until proven guilty. They hear something wrong about a pastor and immediately they believe it. So there's a, a gentleman, his name is Brian Chapel, and he's, uh, he's basically a teacher of pastors. He's written a number of books on preaching, but, but he says this. He says, church leaders are highly visible and tragically vulnerable to the adverse actions of the disorderly, the malevolent, and the ill-willed, and to whispering gossip. The human proclivity to believe the worst sadly persists, even in the church. That even in the church, people tend to believe the worst specifically about pastors. Guilty until proven innocent. Now, I might not believe it unless I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, but I've seen this very thing play out even here. This happened back in September of 2019. I saw this played out exceptionally well in some Facebook ads that we were putting out. We were about to launch our Spanish service at our Pioneer campus. And so we were some ads we were putting out on Facebook to get the word out. And there was one particular ad where somebody made some comments and they just threw out some crazy accusations against the pastor of Fielder, against me. And here were some of their claims. In that, in that comment, they were saying, oh, you got to watch out for that church. That pastor just tries to take everybody, everybody's money. And, and I, I know it because he's got, he's got two Mercedes Benz in his garage. He's got a, a Porsche SUV. He's got a, he's got a BMW SUV. And my favorite, he's got a $700,000 Ferrari sitting in his garage in his mansion. And then somebody said, well, how do you know this to be true? And he went on to explain and and to say, well, I know this because I get paid $5,000 every single month to clean his multiple mansions. And I've seen all this with my own eyes. And then he finished up all kind of like nonchalantly, you know, like saying, oh, and by the way, he's got a private jet, (laughs) which when I read the thing, I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. You want to know who was the most upset? It was my wife, Virginia. You want to know why she was upset? She's going, ain't nobody going to say that I pay 5,000 bucks to clean this house that I clean every single week. She was offended that somebody even suggests that we have somebody we're paying that much to clean our, our multiple mansions. Let me go ahead and set the record straight. We don't have any of what he talked about. Now, praise the Lord, we have a house big enough to, to put in the eight of us, and most of my kids have their own room. Some of them share, but I guarantee you we don't have multiple mansions. And, and about the cars, the nicest car we have, I have a, a 2014 Jeep Wrangler. I love it. It's great. 
but I ain't no Porsche or Mercedes Benz. And let me go ahead and tell you, uh, the SUV we have is a Nissan 12-passenger bus that looks like a brick on wheels. It's ugly as sin. It's probably not going to be confused with a Porsche. My other two cars, we got a Prius and we got a 2001 GMC truck. That's it. I don't know where the Ferrari came from, but we ain't got it. And when I got to fly somewhere, I'm coach in the back with everybody else, man. I ain't got my private jet. None of this stuff was true. I mean, it was just the most outlandish, evil, false thing that was thrown out there to keep people from coming to our service. But you want to know the thing that surprised me the most was how quickly people bought it. Like there were people going, are you serious, man? Like just affirming. And there was one comment. This is what I hate about pastors. Like just assuming it's true when there's nothing true about it. Just bought it hook, line, and sinker. Why? Because pastors are guilty until proven innocent. And Paul said it's supposed to be the reverse of that. Listen, this I, I could probably laugh off if it wasn't so much more dangerous because it's not really about my reputation. It's about the reputation of Jesus Christ. That there are people who see those kinds of comments and just believe it, and then they disregard pastors, they disregard the church, they disregard spiritual leadership, and they decide the church has nothing to offer them. They throw Jesus right out with it. All because of a bunch of lies from the pit of hell that somebody puts out there because they want to tear somebody down. You know what's really bad? I can, see, I can see that stuff happening outside the church, but sometimes it happens even inside the church. There's gossip and there's whispers about pastors and their failures, and they pass it all around, even though there's not evidence for it. There's not two or three witnesses, just some rumor going around. People buy it, guilty until proven innocent. And what Paul is saying is it must never be that way. We have to protect the reputation, the spiritual leadership of the pastors of the church because we know that when the, the reputation of the pastor is torn down unnecessarily, so is the reputation of Christ Jesus. He's saying protect the reputation of the pastor, not for the pastor's sake, but for Christ's sake. Do it. Because the church matters that much. And maybe you're saying, well, how do I know this is really about Christ and not just about the pastor, Jason? Well, the reason you know it is because the next few verses, what Paul says is, and if a pastor fails and sins, you got to call him out. He's not about protecting pastors. He's about protecting the reputation of Jesus. And when a pastor gets in the way of that reputation, he says, you got to call him out. And, and let me go ahead and tell you, pastors do fail morally. You know this. I know this. This is a truth. And when pastors more fail, morally fail, we have the, the capacity of really marring and destroying the reputation of Jesus. I mean, just think about it, how much higher the stakes are. So if you're watching this and you're married, let's say you commit adultery. Now, that'll wreck your marriage. It'll wreck your family. It'll affect your sphere of influence, but it really won't go a whole lot outside of that. But if I commit adultery, that doesn't just wreck my marriage. That doesn't just wreck my kids. That wrecks the whole church. The stakes are higher, and Paul knew it. And so he said, pastors don't get some kind of free pass. You got to hold them accountable. Listen to what he says in verses 20 to 22 as we keep reading. He says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure, he says. So really clearly, he says, if there's a pastor who's persisting in sin, you got to rebuke him publicly. Now, I want to be really cautious here because this is that second Pandora's box I was talking about. This is not saying it is your religious and spiritual duty to point out every single one of my sins and flaws or any of the other pastors on staff. He's very clear when he says, do not, no, don't accept a charge against elders, but for those who persist in sin, then you rebuke them. That word in Greek, 
is those who, it's present tense verb for sin, those who keep on sinning. So this isn't like the dude who fails, the pastor who fails, but repents and is restored and, and moves on, has a, a moment lapse when there's repentance and change. That, that's not what that's referring to. It's somebody who is unrepentant, who persists in sin. Because when there's a pastor who fails and who repents and who's restored, that can actually build the reputation of Jesus. But when there's somebody blatantly leading who persists in sin, that person can damage and destroy the reputation of Jesus in the sight of others. And it has to be dealt with. Ultimately, Paul was calling pastors to godliness, helping us understand that we affect the reputation of Jesus Christ. That's actually why he ended verse 22 with that message to Timothy. Timothy, you too, keep yourself pure. And this actually informs what he says in verse 23. Now, let me go ahead and forewarn you before we read verse 23. It's an unusual verse. It's actually, if you're reading from the English Standard Version, it's in parentheses because there's some struggle to see the flow of thought of how he's going. So he's talking about rebuking pastors and all that. Listen to what he says in verse 23. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. There's a side where you read this going like, where did that come from? You know, I mean, how do you handle that? In fact, there were some scholars who originally tried to discredit this saying, well, this must not have been in the original manuscripts, but they've done enough research. They know that this is original. The earliest manuscripts have that in there. And there are people who try to explain this away on all different sides. You, you got the teetotalers on one side going, well, that can't possibly be alcoholic wine. It must be grape juice. That's what he's referring to. But listen, if you try to say that, the problem is it was, it was medicinal when it was fermented grape juice. In other words, the medicinal power of it was in the fact that it was alcoholic and therefore it was used for his frequent ailments. So you can't discredit it that way. Oh, then you got the other side, those people who love drinking wine. They're going, yes, I got Paul himself telling me I get to down this bottle of wine. Praise Jesus. Now, let me go ahead and if that's where you fall, let me go ahead and tell you, that's not what Paul's point was here. He is not trying to make a point that it is right or wrong to drink al alcoholic beverages. He's actually dealing with something totally different inside of Timothy. He's actually fighting a legalistic tendency inside of Timothy. You only understand it when you look at the whole letter of Timothy. This is what I love about going chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. At the very beginning, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the whole message that Paul was giving Timothy is, Timothy, you got to call out false doctrine. And in chapter 4, he told us one of the false doctrines was that there was this, this doctrine of asceticism, this idea of self-sacrifice, of giving up marriage and, and therefore sex and food and pleasure. And there was this false belief that as long as you forewent any kind of pleasure, that made you holier and more spiritual. And apparently, Timothy was falling prey to this thought. That's why he was only drinking water, because to have wine would be pleasure, and you can't do that, even if it was for medicinal purposes. And Paul says, Timothy, stop being so stinking legalistic. You're missing that God has given you permission to take this for your stomach, for your body, for your ailments. What he's trying to do is he's trying to show Timothy that the legalism that was building inside of him, that religiosity, that hypocrisy was just as dangerous as overt sin because he was exposing what was inside of his heart. So let me go ahead and tell you right now, if you're listening to this sermon, moms and dads who got teenagers and kids, whatever, this is not permission to go down a bottle of wine right when the service is over. Uh, there are many people who have great reasons why they don't drink alcohol, and you should make sure you examine every single reason why you would or would not partake of it. But that is not the point at all of this particular passage of Scripture. This is simply saying you got to know what's inside of your heart because what's inside your heart will ultimately come out. Ultimately, whether you do good or bad, what's inside the heart will be exposed. That's why he moves on to verses 24 and 25. I think you'll understand these verses better now that you know that context. So let me read these two verses. 
Paul says, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So here's what he's saying. He's saying you might not be able to tell if it's a good apple or a bad apple at first, but sooner or later, it'll come to light. You'll know. If somebody has sin, they might hide it for a season, but it's going to come out. If somebody does good, it may be hidden for a season, but sooner or later, it's going to come out. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the hidden parts, the secret parts of our lives will one day be exposed and it will be to the honor or to the shame of Christ Jesus. It'll build his reputation. It'll tear down his reputation. What we do in secret matters immensely. I think sometimes people think that how we behave in public, that's really who we are. But let me tell you, that's not who you really are. You want to know who you are? What do you do when no one's looking? That's who you really are. Your private actions will determine who you are in public spaces. You got to remember that because you have every single day, you have, as this passage talks about, many things that you're going to do, thousands upon thousands of little decisions that you're going to make that no one sees. And what you choose to do in those moments will one day point to the honor or the shame of Christ Jesus. That's actually what he gets to in, in chapter six as we finish up in verses one and two of that chapter. This very thing that how we treat others, even when no one's looking, is going to be to the honor or the shame of the name of God. Let's keep on reading. Let's finish up the passage. Here's what it says in chapter six, verse one. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as, as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Because so here's what he's talking about. He's talking about those who are in a position of servitude, slavery. Now, praise God, that evil, horrific institution of slavery has been done away with, and we fight against any form of it today, whether it's, it's human or otherwise. We, we want to do away with slavery. Praise God, it doesn't exist. But this, I think, is applicable to those of us who have any kind of authority, whether that's a boss at work, it's a parent, it's a coach, it's a teacher, it's somebody else. We have somebody that we come under their authority. And what Paul is saying is, you must show honor to those who are in authority over you, whether they deserve it or not, or not. And more importantly, whether they see it or not. So one of the contexts in here, when it says, don't be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers, is that there were some relationships in, that, in the small house churches in Ephesus where both the master and the servant were a part of the same house church, which meant they were brothers in Christ. And what would happen is that servant would decide he didn't need to show respect to that master when the master wasn't looking. Now, maybe he wouldn't do what his master told him to do, and he'd go, ah, it's fine, we're brothers, we go to the same church, he's not gonna do anything. Or maybe when that master was out of town, he might say something disrespectful about that guy, ah, it's fine, we're brothers, he's not gonna do anything about it. And he's saying, don't take advantage of the relationship you have. Whether, that, whether your boss sees you or not, you show him honor. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled, it says. We show honor even when no one's looking because the name of Jesus, the reputation of Jesus is at stake. We do it for Christ's sake. And so what this is teaching us is that every single time we have an opportunity to show kindness, to do good, to be generous, to be upright, we do it whether people see it or not because it is for the sake of Christ and his reputation. Now, maybe we're wondering what this looks like played out like on a personal level. Let me tell you just a, a really odd little example of this. It seems totally meaningless, but I think you'll see what I'm talking about. So my wife and I, we're both on a low-carb diet. Six days a week, we eat low-carb. On the Sabbath, we just eat it all up, whatever we want. But for six days a week, we're low-carb. 
And, and because of that, you know, I don't ever get desserts or treats during the week, but, but my wife and I, we have one thing that we do every night after dinner, we each eat one little square of super dark chocolate, like 85% dark chocolate. Most people say it tastes like mud. I love it because it, it feels like something sweet. And so we'll, we'll have that one piece of chocolate. So after dinner this past week, I was going to the pantry to get the chocolate. And my wife said, hey, uh, Jason, bring me some too. So it was down to the last two pieces of chocolate and I broke them. The only problem is one broke off bigger than the other. So now I had a little conundrum, right? Now, what, what do I give my wife? Do I give her the big piece or the little piece? Now, let me tell you, my sick, twisted little mind, as I'm taking this about 15-foot walk, I have this whole journey in my mind about why I deserve the bigger piece of chocolate. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm bigger than she is. I mean, so of course I should have the bigger piece. I run more than she runs. She'll never even know if I give her the, piece, the bigger piece of chocolate. She won't appreciate it. So I, I should take the bigger piece. And I'm just walking along, justifying the sin in my heart until finally the Lord just like, Jason, wake up. What are you thinking? Don't you know my word is due to others what you would want them to do to you? Don't you know that I, I want you to be generous and kind and serve your wife? So, of course, when I finally came to my spiritual senses, I realized she's never going to know. I gave her the big piece of chocolate, and I sat down on, on the other side of the table with my small piece of chocolate, and I knew I was doing it to the glory of Jesus, to his honor. No one knew about it except my wife now. Baby, I love you. I gave you the bigger piece. But other than this, no one else would know about it. And I need to be able to do that for the sake of the honor of the name of Christ Jesus when no one's looking. Because one day, everything we do will be revealed. Listen, I want you to know, for those of you who try to live for Christ Jesus, that's great news in verse 25. That your good works, some may see it, some may not. But even those that are not seen right now cannot remain hidden. One day it will be for the glory of King Jesus. One day when we sacrifice, one day when we give and no one knows about it, one day when we serve, one day when we humble ourselves before somebody who doesn't deserve us to humble ourselves before them, God's gonna get the glory for it. His reputation will be built. We do it for Christ's sake. It's the reason why we, we pay pastors so they can build up the church so we can be more Christ-like. This is why we guard their reputation, even if maybe they don't deserve it. This is why we hold pastors accountable and I would want that for me too because it's about the reputation of Christ. This is why we don't let legalism take over us. This is why we humble ourselves before authorities all for the sake of Christ's reputation. We do it for Christ's sake. And one day we know it's not gonna remain hidden. He'll receive glory for it. And the reason you and I can do all this for Christ's sake is because we know how much he's done for our sake. You and I, we've read the gospel. We've read the Bible. Those of us who are believers in Jesus, we know that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who came to live the obedient life that you and I couldn't live. We know this book says that at the end of his life, at the tender age of 33, that he was, he was tortured and murdered on a cross to pay the penalty for our misdeeds and our rebellions. We know, according to this book, that three days later, he rose up from the dead so that he could offer us eternal life and reconciliation to the Father. He'd do all that for us when we don't deserve it. And because he did all that for our sake, now we do all things for his sake, no matter what they may be. Make no mistake about this particular passage of Scripture. It's not about elders or spiritual leadership or about masters and servants. It's about the reputation of King Jesus. And that's what we live for. Now, I want you to know, if you've placed your faith in Christ Jesus, you have every reason to live for his glory. But there are some of you right now, I know you're watching this and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ Jesus. Maybe you, you have good affection for Jesus, but you've never really come under his rule, under his authority. You've never asked him to forgive you of your sins. Let me be clear with you about verse 24, what it says. 
He says that one day your sins will come to light. You cannot hide them forever. Hey, let me be real honest with you. There are some of you living a sinful lifestyle right now, and you know it, and you think no one else knows it, and maybe no one else on earth does, but one day you will stand before the Lord and have to give an account for your life. And until those sins are dealt with, you will have to stand with those sins before you. And there is no amount of good work that you can do to overcome those sins. The scriptures tell us clearly the only way those sins can be dealt with is when we nail them to the cross by placing our faith in Christ Jesus. But today you can have the forgiveness of every sin you have ever committed. Today you can have God heal your heart and give you a reason to want to live for his sake and to be above reproach and full of integrity and be generous and kind because he would do all this for you. But it comes when you repent of your sins, you confess those, ask for forgiveness, and then give Jesus your life and say, take it, it's yours. That's placing your faith in Christ Jesus. I believe there are some of you watching this and you need to have your sins washed away. You need to have a fresh start in your life. It can happen today. So here's what I'd like to ask you to do. If you're watching this online, I'd like to ask you to get your phone out and text the word next step to 94253. It's right there on your screen. You can see it, or you can go to fielder.org slash next step. And there's a really quick form you can fill out. And one of the places you can check is I would like to talk to a pastor or I would like to place my faith in Christ. If you have questions about this, or if you're ready to take that step, take just a moment and do that. Let us know because a pastor wants to reach out to you. One of us who are charged to feed the flock, to serve the body. I mean, we receive salaries to do this for you. If you need this, then I want to encourage you to let us know so we can reach out to you and pray with you. And also, I want to say this every week, if you have some prayer need, it may not be anything I've preached on, but you need prayer for something going on in your life. Same number, 94253. Just type in the word next step. Let us know and we'll pray for you. We'll lift this up before the Lord. That's how we can serve you. Now, if you're at one of the watch parties right now on the campuses, I'm going to ask you to do something different. I'm going to ask you to stay in your seat when we dismiss the groups. That way we'll know that you want to have prayer. They're going to dismiss one by one and you just stay right there and a pastor will come to you and we'll pray with you and counsel with you for whatever it may be. If you just have a need or you want to talk about placing your faith in Christ, we just want to minister to you. So you can stay in your seat when the service is over if you're at one of the watch parties. But I pray that today you'll take that step. You'll find faith and healing and forgiveness in Christ Jesus. But I know there are a lot of you watching this and you've made that decision. You've placed your faith in Christ. You've had your sins washed away. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And it's time to celebrate him. It's time to remember that we can live for his sake because he has done so much for our sake. And you know how we do that? We do it by taking the Lord's Supper. We remember that he gave up his body and his blood for our sake. Therefore, we do everything for his sake. We do it for Christ's sake. And so here's how we're gonna finish our time today. If you're sitting at home watching this, I'm gonna give you a chance, whoever's in your home, to take the Lord's Supper together. We've done this a few times. We're gonna give you some video promptings, some slides that'll tell you some passages of scripture to read and how you as a family can take the Lord's Supper together. So one of, one of you who's, who's functioning as a spiritual leader in your home can lead that time. You can have various people pray or whatever, but I wanna encourage you guys to take that step to take the Lord's Supper. If you're at one of the watch parties, we're going to have a live time of, of music and worship in our service, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together after I pray and after we worship. But I just want to encourage you, let this be the reminder of why you have placed your faith in Christ, why he is worthy of sacrificing everything for his name's sake. We do it for Christ's sake. Let me pray for us, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for speaking into our hearts, God. Thank you for reminding us that Christ is worthy of giving everything up for. And I pray, God, that you would find in us, your church, men and women of faith who are living everything, whether it's seen or not, for the glory and the reputation of King Jesus. And God, let us be a healthy church that does so 
so that Jesus can be received the way he should with all glory and honor and power and dominion because we love him and we love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.